Let's pray together. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer, and pray that in hearing your word, we would not just hear it and so deceive ourselves, but do what it says. We pray that we would be filled with the wonder that you have a work to do in this world and that you would use us to your ends. For that, we give you thanks and pray that you would ready us for that work and use us for that work. In Jesus' name, amen. Looking back, I realized that I wasn't a, a typical seminary student. Uh, what I mean by that is most people who go to seminary or Bible college, they go because they have a very strong sense of calling to ministry. And so most of the people who go to seminary go because they feel that God has called them to be a biblical counselor or a missionary or a pastor or a church planter. When I went, I was pretty sure that I was going to be a middle school history teacher. That's where I was when I went to seminary. And as I think about it, I think I went to seminary for two reasons. One was just to study the Bible. I was a Christian. I really loved the Bible. I loved good Bible studies where I learned new things. And so I went to seminary genuinely thinking that it was a three-year Bible study. I figured you got there in year one and started in Genesis. At the end of three years, you ended in Revelation, and they gave you a degree. That's what I thought seminary was. The second reason I went to seminary was simply because Joe Thartakarava was going to seminary. And if you know, Joe is a member of our church. Joe was a good friend of mine in college. We had roomed together, and I had so much fun with Joe that I thought, why would I stop this? So I went to seminary. I, I basically said to Joe, where you go, I will go, and your people will be my people, and your seminary will be my seminary. That, that's what I said to Joe, right? So I spent three years and $25,000, which we paid off to go and learn the Bible, okay? And as I think about it, I was like a kid in a candy shop. And the reason was because I couldn't believe we were getting to study the Bible. And, and I wasn't just drinking in seminary. I was drowning in seminary. Like, everything was over my head. I didn't understand not only what the professors were saying. I didn't even understand the questions the students were asking to the professors, right? They, they would have these paragraph-long questions, which I had to decipher before the answer of the... I mean, it was just, I learned so much. And yet, as I think back to all the different things that I learned, one of the most profound things that I learned about the Bible was actually one of the simplest things that I learned about the Bible, right? One of the most influential, impactful things for me as I learned about the Bible is actually one of the most simplest things. And here's the lesson I learned. Simply that when you read the Bible and you read a verse in the Bible, you should read it in its context. That was it. Very simple, that what comes before a verse and what comes after a verse matters. And, and when you think about it, I, I suddenly realized I probably didn't need three years and $25,000. I probably just needed a book on how to read, right? Because that's essentially what I learned. What I learned was uh, what I don't do with any other book of the Bible, I tend to do with the Bible all the time, which is nobody opens a book and just points their finger to a verse and pulls something out. You read what's before and what's after. And that was one of the most simplest and yet most profound things I learned in seminary. So one example of that sort of thing is the verse that you heard Kurt read. Jeremiah 29 verse 11. This is a verse that I knew since I was a young Christian. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That is an incredible verse. 
That is a majestic mountain of a promise. God is telling his people, I know the plans I have for you. And these plans I have for you, they are not to harm you or to hurt you or to destroy you. They are to give you hope and a future. Now, whenever I had seen that verse, it was usually printed against some kind of really scenic backdrop. Right? When I'd seen that verse, it's usually an open meadow with flowers and a sun in the corner and sunlight flooding the fields. Or when I've seen that verse, it's usually on a crystal clear lake with woods by the side and a deer sipping the water and a majestic mountain reflected in the pool below. And yet, what I learned with three years and $25,000 later was that if I read what was before and after that verse, here's what I would have learned. I would have discovered that that majestic promise, that mountain of a promise, wasn't actually first given in a quiet countryside. It wasn't given by a still lake of water. Instead, what I learned was, if anything, it was given in a noisy, busy, bustling city. That's what I learned. That... That promise, that verse, was originally given in a way that if you were going to print it against anything, you'd print it against skyscrapers and row homes on Adams Avenue. You'd print it against project housing. Project housing, in the background, is what was sort of in view when God says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This majestic mountain of a verse, this promise, was originally first given to urban missionaries. They were given to God's people, uh, the church, if you will, that lived and worked and worshipped in and around a city. That's where this promise first came. And so, this morning, here's what I think Jeremiah 29 has for us. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. And I know what it is, right? I'm here to tell you what God's plan for your life is this morning. And here it is. If I could put it in one sentence, I think Jeremiah 29 is saying, God put you in this city to pursue its peace and pray while you wait for him to bring you home. That's what I think the chapter is. God put you in this city. God put you in this place. So pursue its peace and pray while you wait for him to bring you home. We're in a series where we're continuing to think through this topic of justice and trying over these weeks to hear what God's word has to say on this topic. And I hope and pray that it's doing for you what it's doing in my own heart, which is each of these passages seem to stretch my heart more and more to the things that God wants. And this morning, we get to hear what he says in Jeremiah 29. So if you've got a Bible, it's page 656 in those Black Pew Bibles. If you've got a different one, you can look in the front and find the page number, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. As we start, let's start by doing what we just said, which is considering the context, considering what comes before and after. And the backstory of Jeremiah 29 is this. Here's the story that precedes this chapter. God's people, that was known as the nation of Israel. This is a people that God had rescued out of captivity, out of slavery. They were in a foreign empire under a foreign leader in a strange city. They were captives and slaves there. God rescued them from captivity and brought them into a land that he had promised them called the promised land, Canaan. And once they were there, the story of God's people, the church in the Old Testament, Israel, 
is that generation after generation, this people lived in sin. They rebelled against the God that had delivered them. They committed iniquity and sin against the God that had rescued them. Generation after generation after generation after generation, they live in sin. In fact, if you read the story of Israel's kings, you get this repeated refrain over and over and over again. You'll read, and so and so became king and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his father did. And then you'll read of another king, and you'll read, and -and so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father did. And you just hear this over and over again with Israel and her kings. And all throughout this story, the backstory is that God keeps warning his people. He keeps sending messengers. We'd call them prophets in the Bible. He keeps sending these prophets to say, listen, repent, turn to the Lord, and if you will not, judgment is coming. They'd say this message one generation after another, and yet the words of the prophets fell on deaf ears and hard hearts and were of no avail. And so, finally, judgment came. It came in the form of a foreign power, specifically the Babylonian Empire, coming into Israel and taking over and destroying Israel. A king named King Nebuchadnezzar comes around 587 B.C., and he comes and destroys Israel. Before you know it, the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of God, is destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem, the holy temple of God, is in ruins. Many of Israel's leaders are killed, and the rest of them are captured, and the people are taken into captivity into the empire of Babylon and its city. This period in the Bible story of God's people is called the exile. They were taken out of the promised land, out of their land, and put in this foreign city. And now, when you get to Jeremiah 29, here the people are. They're in this city called Babylon, right? And and in the Bible, Babylon is like the original sin city. Meaning, if there was ever a descriptor of a bad city, Babylon is the city that the Bible will use. It's the exemplar par excellence of a bad city. Even in Revelations, it talks about the city of Babylon as the epitome of all that is wrong. It's almost like here is the city of Satan, right? So they're living in a city. The church is living in a city that doesn't believe what they believe. The neighbors in Babylon think that the beliefs of these Jewish people are peculiar and odd, and it doesn't make sense to them. And the question is, where they were once in the city of God, Jerusalem, now they find themselves in the city of man, in the city of Satan, Babylon. And the question is, how is the church supposed to relate to its city? Living in Babylon, how is the church supposed to relate to this unbelieving and hostile and problematic city? And and preachers have pointed out that the people of Israel, the church in Babylon, would have faced in that city the same kind of temptations you and I face about how we would relate to our city. Meaning, they were tempted to relate to Babylon in some of the same ways we're tempted to relate to Philadelphia. Uh, Generally, for example, there's two opposite poles when it comes to how we should relate to the city that, that might tug at our hearts, two ends of the spectrum. One would be to be somewhat antagonistic and apathetic towards the city. The other would be to assimilate and dive right into the city. They're two ends of the spectrum, two extremes, and yet both pull on this church in Babylon. For example, on on one end, the antagonistic end, the apathetic end, the thinking would go, 
You know deep down, at best you don't care about this city, or at worst you hate this city. Deep down in your heart, you might smile at your Babylonian neighbors, but you know you're stuck here, and so you'll do what you have to to make a life here, but you could not care less about this city. Deep down, in fact, you know that while you smile at your Babylonian neighbors, inside your heart and behind closed doors, you hate this city. You hate its dirty streets. You bemoan its failing schools. You don't trust its corrupt leaders. You despise its high crime. You're bothered by its rampant poverty. There are problems everywhere, but at the end of the day, they're not your problems. It's the city's problems. And you're here to eke out a living, and you'll do what you have to to relate to this city because you got stuck here. You're antagonistic or apathetic at best. That's one approach. And I want you to know, Israel would have been tempted towards that approach. They would have been tempted towards that approach because they had lots of false prophets who had come at just the right time to fuel exactly that kind of thinking. For example, if you read one chapter before our passage, in chapter 28, there's a guy named Hananiah. And Hananiah comes and he tells Israel exactly what they would have wanted to hear. They say... Hananiah says to the people, listen, God has told me what's going to happen. He's going to break the back of Babylon in two years. And so don't move in. Keep your bags packed because we will be out of here before you know it. Two years. You know how fast two years is going to go? And God's going to get rid of Babylon. And if anything, you should be ready for a rebellion against this empire because in two years you will be home. So don't move in. Don't unpack your clothes. Live out of a suitcase because before you know it, we'll be out. Antagonistic or apathetic. The other end of the spectrum, the pull on the church, would have been to assimilate. The temptation here is not to resist the, temp the city, but to dive fully in. In fact, from what I've heard and learned in studying this week, this is probably Babylon's preference. The Babylon, as an empire, had gotten good at, at conquering other people. And what they had probably learned was, you know, when you've got an opponent, you can either kick them out, but if you do, they usually tend to come back in. Or you could push them down, but if you do, they tend to rise back up. And so the best thing to do with your enemies is not to kick them out or to push them down, but to blend them in, to pull them in. In fact, this was Babylon's strategy. Whenever the exiles came, what Babylon tended to do was to give them new jobs. And with those new jobs, they'd give them new names. And with those new names, they'd give them new gods. And before you know it, in a generation or two, this people has lost anything distinct about them. They might look Israelite, but functionally they're Babylonian. And before you know it, there's nothing different about the city and about the church. Nothing different about what the city values and believes and is after and what God's people believes and values and is after. And like everyone else in the city, you're out to make a name for yourself and to make a career and to earn a living and to gain comfort and to bide your time here, right? You might keep a copy of the Torah in your home, but deep down, functionally, you live like everyone else in the city. And before you know it, Soon enough, you might even forget that this is not your home, that your citizenship actually belongs somewhere else, but you come to see this as your permanent place. Two opposite poles 
that would have pulled on this church. And yet, just as the people of God in Babylon are trying to figure out how they're to relate to the city, a letter comes in the mail. A letter comes from back home from the prophet Jeremiah. This is how it starts, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 2 and 3 tells us how that letter came, and then verse 4 is the beginning of this letter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what you're to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I want to suggest for us three things that God tells this group of God's people. The church back then, some 2,500 years ago in Babylon, that we would do well as a church in Philadelphia to hear even today. Okay? Three things from this passage. Here's the first. First, simply, God put you in this city. God put you in this place. Right? Verse 4, the letter starts, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, and notice these words, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The letter starts with God speaking, and God's telling his people what? It's not so much that Nebuchadnezzar brought you into this city, as much as it is that I have sent you into this city. It's almost as if Nebuchadnezzar may have been the vehicle that carried you here, but I was the driver all along. Right? I was the one directing where you were going to go. It's not so much that you've been brought here as exiles. You've been sent here. You're the sent ones of God. That's what we would call today missionaries. And, th and that transforms their thinking that they're not just exiles brought under the judgment of God, but even that being the case, they are at the same time here missionaries sent by God with something that God has for them to do. Simply for us, wouldn't it be something, friends, if we remembered that that's true for us too? That, that that's true for us. That maybe it's immigration or a job or school or marriage that brought you here. But that God would tell you, that may have been the vehicle that brought you here, but I was the driver all along. And that you're in this city, in this place, because God put you here. If that's right, then, then it's almost what the Apostle Paul said when he preached in Acts 17. He was preaching and he said, listen, God has determined the very places and times and boundaries of where you should be. That the Almighty God decided exactly where you should live and when you should live there. That out of all the places he could have put you, he put you here. And out of all the times, he put you now. You are here now because the Lord put you here. And what should this people do, this church do, as long as God has determined that this and now is where they should be? Verse 5, here's what they're to do. 
Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Since God has put you here, this is what he's telling Israel. Here's what I want you to do. Build homes. Plant gardens. Get married. Have babies. Let those babies have babies. You raise families here. You live here in this place that I have sent you to. That's what I want for you. Uh, that's what I desire for you. And in saying this, notice that God goes against everything the false prophets have been saying. The false prophets have been saying, pitch tents, rent, don't buy, because you won't be here long. Right? In two years, you'll be out. And yet God, if you read down to verse 10, will tell this people, actually, you'll be here 70 years. That, that's not enough for you to pitch a tent, build a home, plant a garden, get married, have children. Don't put your life on hold waiting for God to take you out of this spot or this place. But have your life here. Raise your family here. I've placed you here. You're going to be here for a few generations. And, and while you're here, do you notice he says, multiply there and don't decrease. That sounds like something in another part of the Bible. In fact, back in Exodus, it's some of the similar language of what God's people did. If you remember the story of Exodus, they too, God's people, were in a foreign place under a foreign and hostile king. And there too, God's people multiplied and did not decrease. In fact, they multiplied so much that the king of that time, the Pharaoh, became paranoid that should a rebellion against the city ever break out, this people are too much. They pose a threat to the city. And now here they are. They're in a foreign empire with a hostile king. They're to multiply. They're not to decrease. And yet, this text is saying they're not here to pose a threat to the city. They're not here to overthrow Babylon. They're not here to oppose the city God put them in. Instead, the second thing is this. God put you in this city, so pursue its peace. They're not here as enemies of the city. They're here to pursue the peace of this city. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. What are God's people? What is this church in Babylon supposed to do since God put them there? They are not to oppose, be antagonistic and apathetic to the city. Instead, since God put them in the city of Satan, here's what they are to do. They are to seek the welfare of the city. Commentators that are much smarter than us have pointed out that this word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom. And everybody who's written on this has written and pointed out that that word shalom, and you'll notice if you read a few English translations, you'll see different words. Some of our translations would say, seek the peace of this city. Some will say, seek the welfare of the city. Some will say, seek the prosperity of the city. And you get all these different translations because this one word, shalom, was too big a word to just have one meaning. It was peace, but not just peace, not only peace, and certainly not even just peace the way we tend to think about peace. When we think of peace, we often think of it as sort of just the absence of conflict, right? It's almost what is not rather than what is. Right? It's just the absence, or, or when we think about peace in terms of spirituality or religion, we tend to think about sort of this inner peace, this tranquility, this calm. But this word here would have been much bigger, much more robust. In fact, some of the words used to define this word shalom 
are words like harmony and justice and wholeness, completeness, health, safety, flourishing, prosperity, welfare. I mean, the, the idea of this one word, it's, it's, it's almost a word big enough to say it's a vision of what the world was supposed to be. That God intended, God created a world of shalom. And he intends to recreate a world of shalom. Right? It, it's the world that it should have been and by God one day will be. That's the vision behind this word. So when it says, seek the peace of the city, it's more than just you, you, God's people, have an inner tranquility or calm. It's much more robust, much bigger. And I think like everything else we've seen in this series so far, it's pushing us beyond a private morality to a society, to a public good. It's more than just a vertical thing between me and God. But that this thing has ramifications that goes horizontally outwards. And, and so here, even in exile, the people of God were not allowed, not permitted to be apathetic or indifferent to the city and even to the needs of the city. I mean, they are in Babylon. And yet God's word comes to them that they are to seek the shalom, the welfare, the flourishing, the harmony, the good of this city. For us then, Sabmarod, a vision of shalom for Philadelphia means there is no shortage of things for us to do. We will never finish till Jesus comes back. Our children and grandchildren will still be at the work of shalom in this city because there's no shortage of things to do. Shalom in Philadelphia will mean that we lament abortion, that we support pregnant moms, that we replace shame with honor, that we adopt children and provide housing for foster care like we talked about last week. Shalom in Philadelphia will mean that we pursue racial reconciliation because if unity and flourishing and harmony is what this word is after, then as long as there's discord and division, then there's work to do. There's shalom to go after. And so it'll mean from simple things like you inviting Someone that doesn't look like you, think like you, walk like you, talk like you, vote like you, act like you, over to dinner. All the way to bigger things like thinking through systems and structures of injustice like we'll talk about next week. Shalom in Philadelphia will mean that when Anne Frank School, two miles from here, the largest elementary K through 6 school in Philadelphia with its 1,200 students and some 50 different nationalities, when Principal Commons reaches out and says, we've run out of paper again. It means, shalom means we will run to, to Staples with our rebates, as the GCM groups do, and buy paper. And it'll mean that at one level all the way to, we'll sit on the Home and School Association, we'll pray for Superintendent Height of Public Schools in Philadelphia. Our welfare is tied up in the city's welfare. If it goes well for the schools in Philadelphia, it goes well for the, our kids who are in the schools of Philadelphia, and so on. You've so enmeshed yourself in this thing that the shalom of this place means shalom for you. And, and you don't have a shalom that's disconnected from the shalom of this place. That, that's the vision here. Shalom means everything from being a good neighbor to feeding the poor to building computer labs at North Hills or mentoring kids at Christ's home. All of this work, wherever there is, 
Injustice, as we're talking about in this series, all the weeks of this series are trying to give us visions of what it means to pursue peace, to be a people of shalom, that where there's injustice or inequality or poverty, wherever those things are, Christians in our city are to be like white blood cells that don't run from but run to the places of wound to build up and repair. That wherever things are broken down, we're like the white blood cells God has left in the city to repair, restore, build up what has been broken down. And listen to this. Since our call is shalom, we care, as this one pastor named John Piper said, we care about suffering, all suffering, including eternal suffering. And since we care about that, our ultimate aim as a church, is not just to bring temporary shalom to our city, but to offer to our city and its people shalom with God through Jesus Christ. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. What that means is we will never be able to escape the tension that says our ministry must always be word and deed. It must be deed and word. I have listened and I'm... This is not false modesty. I'm not smart enough to figure out all the conversations that Christians have about, is the church supposed to be about social justice? Or is it supposed to be about gospel proclamation? And as you keep listening to these things being teased out and parsed out, I think for us, we're just going to have to live with the tension that we're never going to drop one or the other. It's always going to be both. It's always going to be word and deed, deed and word. The gospel proclaimed with our lips and demonstrated by our lives Always, forever, it's like a right-hand, left-hand question. Which arm would you rather get cut off? The answer would be, I'd prefer neither, right? I'd prefer to not let either one go. Gospel proclamation and gospel action, that's the ministry of the church. And we'll live in that tension. Even today was announced that we're going to have a financial seminar. This seminar has been offered by Jake and Freddie multiple times. I remember sitting in on the planning sessions for the very first time we did it. And you know what there was? Tension. Tension because while we want to teach basics of economic thought or how to manage your money or balance your budget or how to help people get out of poverty, while that is important, the burden that Jake and, 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 and Freddie kept feeling was while we say all this, how are we not going to say something about God? How are we not going to tell them about the one who, though he was rich, became poor so that in his poverty we might become rich? And so how are we not going to squeeze Bible into this seminar? And that was the tension. And, and we never resolved it or figured it all out perfectly, but that's the tension of our work. Our tension is, how are we ever going to tell people about the one who came out of riches and embraced poverty to make us rich without doing anything about poverty? But how are we going to do something about poverty without telling them about the one who was rich and became poor to lift them out spiritually? How are we going to ever give bread without telling them about the one who is the bread from heaven? But how are we just going to tell them about bread from heaven with our lips without giving them bread? And so not either or. We're going to fight through our conversations and our tensions to say both and always Seek the shalom of this city. That means we will do the works this series is talking about. But that means we will never tire, can't tire, of proclaiming the one who is our shalom. That God the Father sent his son, a sent one, into the cities of man. 
and the sent one came and he lived and worked and ministered for the shalom of everybody. Through word and deed, Jesus Christ worked for the flourishing of everyone. And in response for our sin, he was cast out of the city of man, out of the city of God. He was killed, exiled out of Jerusalem so that by his death and through his resurrection, we might be brought into the city of God and might have shalom with God through Jesus Christ. We ought never tire of proclaiming that, ought never tire of demonstrating that. Here's the third thing. God put you in this city, so pursue its peace, and third, pray on its behalf. That's verse 7. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God put you in this city, so pursue its shalom, its peace. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. Here's the simple thing. We know we are not Philadelphia's saviors. We know that. We could not save our own souls. Jesus had to do that. How much less can we save an entire city? So that helplessness ought to drive us to pray. To know, in light of all of this, we can't do this, so we ought to pray. A few weeks ago, Kevin was leading us through intercessory prayer. And if I remember right, he was leading us through prayer for Syria at the time. And you you think of everything you've heard in the news and the complexity of all this and all the people on this problem and all the different opinions. And there's the, the military stuff and the war in Syria and the refugees and the crisis and the immigrant, all of that stuff. And at one point in his prayer, if I remember right, he prayed something like, in light of all this, we just see how powerless and small we are. And so we pray. We pray to a God who is essentially big enough and can do what we cannot do. That was wonderfully freeing for me. Wonderfully freeing to know I don't have to solve the Syrian crisis. I I wouldn't even know where to begin. And so I pray to a God who is over the whole thing. Pray. Pray for the city on its behalf. That's wonderfully freeing because if you think and take seriously, how are we to get involved in the work of spiritual and social shalom in Philadelphia? All right, so where do you start? Racism or poverty or education or crime or abortion or politics or immigration or refugees? I mean, we're preaching through every one of these and yet by them all, do you not feel unbelievably small? So what we ought to do is pray. Pray on behalf of the city. And you have to imagine, for Israel, in Babylon, that must have come as such a shocking word from God. I've put you in the city of Satan, so what are you to do? Pray. Pray on behalf of the city of Satan. Pray for its welfare, its flourishing, its shalom. How are you supposed to pray? This one pastor named Phil Riken, he used to be a pastor here in Philadelphia, he he made this wonderful point that, God's people had prayers for their city. For example, let me just read you a few verses out of Psalm 122. Psalm 122 would have been words that God's people had prayed for Jerusalem all the time. They knew how to pray for a city. They prayed for their city all the time. Listen to this. Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you, Jerusalem. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good Jerusalem. They had all the liturgy down already. 
Now imagine that God was telling the church in Babylon, I want you to say the same exact words, except substitute Babylon for Jerusalem in that prayer. Or to us, to say those same exact words and substitute Philadelphia for Jerusalem. To say to the Lord, we pray for the peace of Philadelphia. May they be secure who love this city. Peace be within its walls, security within its towers. For the sake of our brothers and companions and all here, peace be within you, Philadelphia. For the sake of the Lord our God, we will seek your good. Pray. Pray on behalf of the city and for its good. Here's what I want you to hear. Friends, this is not pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff. I was thinking this week, the Bible itself is examples of this happening. You think of, for example, the story of a man named Joseph. You think of the story of a man named Daniel, who at this very time, when Jeremiah is writing this, is being brought to Babylon. You think of what these men were and their lives were. They were not apathetic or antagonistic to the places God sent them to. Instead, they were present and prayerful and pursuing the peace of the very places God had sent them to. Here's what I know from reading those stories. Egypt was a better place because Joseph was there. And Babylon was better off because Daniel was there. And so a valid question for us and for the churches in our city is, is Philadelphia better because we're here? Is North Hills better because we're here? Is Willow Grove and Bucks County and Montgomery County better because we're here? Would it not be what we're after if our neighbors in the city look at us and say, their beliefs are so odd, so peculiar, their thoughts about things are so narrow and primitive, the way they understand life, the things they think about sex and marriage, we don't agree with any of that, but we are so glad they're here. And we couldn't imagine the city without them. Is that not what we should strive for? And friends, from what I've heard and read this week, it's happened before. If you read or hear the stories of the early Christians, the early church, from what I've read and heard, it seems they did exactly that. That, that they were in the Roman Empire, for example. And the Romans would have looked at them as odd as the Babylonians would have looked at Israel. They would have saw this people and their beliefs as so narrow. They have one God, not the pantheon like we do. They worship this crucified man named Jesus of Nazareth. They think so different than us when it comes to life or marriage or sexuality. All their beliefs are skewed. And yet, it seems that when plagues and problems broke out in the cities throughout the empire, rather than fleeing, the Christians ran in. They were like the white blood cells in the city. They repaired, they helped, they healed. They suffered diseases themselves because they ministered to those with diseases. And, and one historian, he had this one line, he said, it seemed because of this, the Romans became susceptible to conversion. Right? That through their ministry, wouldn't you know it, the Romans became susceptible to conversion. That these guys were in there doing the very things we're trying to say throughout this series, we're trying to say throughout our church. Before we finish, let me just say this. Here's the last thing. Would you notice what Jeremiah says in this last chunk of verses in this section, verses 10 through 14? Just listen. For thus says the Lord, 
When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And this last thing, here's just what I want you to hear. Ultimately, what God had sent them to do in Babylon wasn't even ultimately for Babylon's good. Ultimately, there was more good than even that. God's promising his people, though you're in exile, I'm not done with all the promises I made from the beginning. I'm not done with you, so don't decrease in number there. Multiply there, because I'm going to bring you back. And it's going to be through you that one day the prince of Shalom will be born. And it's through your very people that I will bring Shalom, not just to Babylon, but to the ends of the earth, through the seed that comes from you. I'm going to bring you back. Here's the promise for the exiles. Though they are in this other city, one day they will be brought to the city of God. They will be brought home. And therein lies a balance the church always has to remember. Therein lies the balance that as long as God has you here, build houses and plant gardens and raise families and pursue peace and pray for the city that I've called you here. But as you do, all the while, Remember, this is not your home. That one day God intends to bring you home, to bring you into the city of God. The best way I think you could hear this is what we Christians are in Philadelphia is we are at best resident aliens. That's what we are. I know that phrase because my father, my father came from India. He still has a green card. He knows what a resident alien is. 36 somewhat years ago he came. He came, he Built, had a home, he had a job, paid his taxes, raised a family, is wonderful friends with his neighbor. He's a good man in society. And yet, dad's heart has always been, his heart of hearts has always been thousands of miles away. It's, it's never fully settled here. In ways that growing up, I didn't even understand because I was American, right? But now I know, if I, if I understand, if I heard him rightly, I think dad is even put into his will. That when his time is done, he is to be buried back home. And I never understood and I fought it. And I, His heart of heart says, I've lived here. I've raised a family here. I've built a home here. I've produced and been a good member of society here. But my final place of rest is to be thousands of miles away in the country where I was born, in the state where I was born, in the town where I was born, in the village that I'm from, down to the home church I grew up in. That's a resident alien. And I think I better understand that's what the scriptures say to us. First Peter calls us aliens and sojourners and exiles who say, you are dual citizens, resident aliens. You live here and for as long as God has you here, plant and build and put down roots and work for the shalom of this place. But all the while knowing the day is quicker coming than it was just a moment ago where your God intends you to bring you to the city of God, a city that will not be built up by our hands, 
but be brought down by gods. Right? I saw the heavenly Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And then there's the new heavens and the new earth. And we will inherit a city where there will finally and forever be shalom. Flourishing in every way. Complete and harmonious in every way. And God himself will bring that down. That's our hope. And because that's our final home, we can endure suffering and shortcomings and, and loss of comfort temporarily here because God will bring us to the city of God. So for us this morning, here it is. God put you in this city to pursue its peace and to pray while you wait for him to bring you home. Let's pray together.